Good morning, Brookside. It's uh, great to be together this morning. And uh, if you're a guest here with us today, I too just want to say welcome. And uh, we're just honored to be able to come together today to celebrate this incredible event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, so welcome. And, and uh, it's just, it's so great to be together here today. Um, what I want to do in the time that we have is open up the scriptures with you and to really look at and really even shed some light on what is this historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and what does it mean very personally? What does it mean for you? And what does it mean for me? And um, so we're going to do that this morning. And what I want to do is I want to unpack for you a simple statement as we walk through the scriptures today. And it's 10 words long. It does two things for us. On the one hand, it celebrates the reality of, of really what we're celebrating today. It points to and it really talks about what is this resurrection of Jesus Christ and what does it mean for you and what does it mean for me and then on the other hand, not only does it celebrate, but it also elicits a response. And, um, and it elicits for you and I to go, okay, wow, I kind of come to a fork in the road and I go, wow, this resurrection of Jesus Christ, it elicits a, a response in me. So here's the statement, 10 words long, here it is. Everybody wins when death is defeated and grace is embraced. Um, when Jesus Christ, when he rose from the grave, that was an incredible victory. It's the reason why there are millions of people literally around the world today that are doing the same thing you and I are doing. We're singing praises to God and we're being humbled and we're just going, oh, wow, if that's true, oh, we celebrate that everybody wins when death was defeated and when grace is embraced. A guy said to me this week, he said, he said you know, no pressure or anything. He said, but Easter Sunday, he said, that's like Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, spiritually, it doesn't get any bigger than that, does it? And that's why it's such a joy for us to be together in this place and, and to worship. Um, so I want to ask you a question this morning. Here it is. Do you like to win? Do you like to win? Yes? Yeah? Most of you do? Yes. We've got two people who want to win. That's good. Uh, <laughs> we all like to win, don't we? We like to be on the winning team, don't we? I mean, that, that everybody does. I think we would easily agree with that. But you might be wondering this, this morning this, you might be saying, well, why is it so significant, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, what's the big deal? And I just want to say to you this morning, maybe you're newer to church or maybe you've been around church for a long time or you haven't been here for a while. Um, I wanted to say to you, my prayer for you this morning is that you would encounter God and that you would walk away and you would say, wow, I want to win not just at the small things in life, but I want to live in the things of life that matter the most. We all want to win. Uh, Christine and I, we have a, uh, uh, three kids. We have a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. And what we're finding is that there's something very unique inside our 5-year-old. He has a drive to win. This kid wants to compete all the time. And so if you're eating a meal, he will eat faster than you so that he can say, I think I won. You know? Um, if you're crossing the street, he'll run ahead because he wants to win. He loves to compete, and so he's really fun to be around. Everything becomes a competition for him, and everything becomes a little place where he can get a victory. Well, recently, a couple of our kids were sick, and one of them uh, just, they sneezed, and then Aiden, or, or sorry, Easton, the, the youngest, the five-year-old, he started coughing, but it was kind of this, it's like 90% fake cough, you know? And he gets done with this little coughing spell, and then he looked at his sibling, and he just said, I think I'm sicker than you, you know? <laughs> He's just got this drive inside of him. I was in an event with him a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was for his preschool, and so it was just a dad-child event. And so all these dads were there together, and, and we had a great time. We did the food thing, and then at the end of the night, they had this little craft thing that we did with our kids, and then we were dismissed. 
Well, we get done with it, and it went really well and had a great time, and we're walking down the hallway, and, and he, tur- he stops, and I'm holding his hand, and so he kind of, you know, pulled my shoulder, and so I, I stopped with him, and he turned and looked behind him. He looked at this room full of all these, these dads working on these projects with their kids, and then he looked up to me, and he said, Dad, I think we won tonight. And I, I didn't know what he meant, and so I said, what do you mean? And he, he turned around, he looked back in the, in the room, and kind of like a bunch of slowpokes back there, you know? And he said, Dad, we finished first tonight, I think. And I was like, I didn't know we were competing, but good job, you're right. Bunch of slackers back there, right? And I didn't say that because he doesn't need any more encouragement, but, but here's the thing. We love the feeling of winning, but even more importantly, not just in little things, we love winning at things that matter most. You might be into the uh, March Madness, and maybe you'd say your bracket's been busted, and so you've experienced not only the, the thrill of victory, but you'd say, man, I've, I've experienced the agony of defeat. We would much rather be on the positive side. We would much rather be on the winning side. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ, when he rose from the grave, it was an incredible victory. I mean, imagine it. Imagine what it was like when he went to the cross and people watched him go through the agony of the crucifixion and then he was laid to rest in a tomb guarded by these Roman soldiers and then three days later, the scriptures record, he rises from the dead and he appears to people. These eyewitnesses, he appeared to them. Then he appears to the people that he loves the most and then he's seen by the crowds. Imagine the thrill of victory. It was like an exclamation point on who he was. We love to win. This week, I was trying to imagine just the array of emotions that must have been going through the minds of the people who were following Jesus. What was it like for them? I was trying just to get in their minds the days leading up to his crucifixion, the weeks even before that, and then the days and the weeks after he resurrected from the grave. What was it like for them? What did they think? What did they feel? How did they respond? And then I asked myself the question, and I noticed this. This stuck out to me just as much. I noticed the response of Jesus. I noticed how did Jesus look at the crowds? How would Jesus have seen a crowd like this today? What would have he thought? What would he have done? How did people respond to him? I love it. We look in the book of Mark. We can see how people responded to him. In Mark chapter 1, we see some of the very initial responses to Jesus Jesus begins to do his um, public ministry, about three years of this. And this is one of the first things that was said about him. It says that the people were also amazed. Let me ask you, when's the last time you were like floored? You were amazed at something. The people were, were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. See, Jesus was different to them. Jesus was someone who came on the scene and he spoke with clarity and he spoke, he had character and he was humble and he was a man of integrity. It goes on in verse 28, it says this about him, news about him, likely, it's, it's, it spread quickly, it makes sense that it did, over the whole region of Galilee. So there's a crowd and there's momentum behind him. And then it says this in chapter 2, in response to his work and his actions, it says, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. They were in awe of who he was. They were amazed. Have you ever noticed that a winning team tends to attract more fans? That's what's happening here. 
all of Galilee, Jerusalem, surrounding areas, they were hearing about Jesus, and as a result, the crowd is growing and growing and growing in number. Because why? Because he amazed them. He was like something they had never heard before. Jesus was like a breath of fresh air to them. Because truth be told, they were sick and tired of what they were living under. These people understood what it meant to be oppressed. These people understood what it meant to live under the authority of a government, of a regime that was oppressive and took advantage of them. And as a result, the people, when Jesus came on the scene, they loved him because he offered hope. And he wasn't simply talking about political hope. He was talking about a future. He was talking about a relationship. He was talking about something that was even greater than they could fathom. But I tell you what, their greatest desire was that Jesus would plant his roots right there in Jerusalem. He'd sink his roots deep into the ground. He would stay there. And then he would rise up, and, and he sure enough would have his own little kingdom there. And he would rise up politically, and he would be their champion. He would be their star. But Jesus had something so much greater in mind. For Jesus, it wasn't so much about who was on their ballot. For Jesus, it was about the condition of their heart. And so Jesus continually talked to the people, and and he said, I came for forgiveness of sins. I came to offer you something much greater. You kind of want a lowercase w right now. You want to win. I get that. But he was saying, I want a capital W. I want a huge win for you, and that's why I have come. And that's why I didn't ride into town on a big stallion. That's why I rode in on a donkey, because I'm here to serve. I'm here to give my life as a ransom for many. Have you ever wanted more for someone else than they wanted for themselves? Have you ever had that feeling? Maybe as a parent, maybe as a friend, and you just looked at somebody you loved, and you said, oh, I just wish they wanted more for themselves than, than they do. For Jesus, I think that's what happened. When he looked at these crowds of people, he thought to himself, I'm sure, They have such a small vision. They want a different name on the ballot. They want me to overthrow this government. They they want me to usher in a new way right here, right now, politically. But he was saying, I'm going to do something so much greater. I'm going to deliver them from something so much greater than just Roman oppression. In Mark chapter 6, we get to see some of Jesus' response to the people. I'm struck by how Jesus responded when he saw crowds. It says this. It says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Meaning this, that these people were, it was as though they were wandering around leaderless. It's as though that the leadership that they had established in their midst, it wasn't any good. It was leading them in in, in wrong ways. It was leading them astray. It was oppressive to them. But it says that Jesus engaged them. He had compassion on them. And the more that Jesus engaged with them, the more they fell in love with the hope of this new teaching that they were hearing. It was amazing. It was like, wow, we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of that winning team. And as a result, that group continued to grow and to grow and to grow. But just imagine the day when Jesus, the one who had been awing them for months, for years, Imagine that day when Jesus, the one who had put his hand on their friend and healed him. Imagine the day when Jesus, the one who had promised so much more in this life. Imagine the day when he went on trial. Imagine the confusion that that would have brought to the people. And then imagine the day when the leaders of that time, when they looked at Jesus, who was now impaled on a cross, and they said this of him. 
They said, hey, he saved others, but he can't save himself. I mean, Jesus, you, he's done all sorts of amazing things right here in our midst. Why can't he take himself down from that cross? What's the big deal? Imagine the disappointment in that moment for them. Imagine the discouragement, the, imagine the frustration maybe even. But even greater than that, imagine what it would have been like on that sad day when they took that long walk home from the public scene of the crucifixion. Imagine what went through their mind as they walked away and they thought, that's the one we trusted in. That's the one that many of them, they had given up so much to follow. Imagine what that was like for them. And then imagine the turn of events then when you get later into the Gospels and you see what happens to Jesus. These people, I mean, if, try to get your mind into what they were feeling. I mean, they had the agony of defeat, but they also had the bliss of victory, the bliss of winning. Mark chapter 6, it says this. This is Mary Magdalene. It's her account and, and Mary, the mother of James. And, and this is what's happening in Mark chapter 16. So they, Jesus has been put in the tomb, and, and now they're going to the tomb. It says, but when they looked up and they saw the stone, which was very large, the one that had sealed the, the, the tomb, it had been rolled away. And so they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man dressed in, in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be afraid, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Now imagine that moment. Imagine what it was like for those women. Now it says in the scriptures that man, they were so awestruck and they couldn't believe it. I mean, this is, this is their savior who they loved. It says in the scriptures they were actually terrified. Fast forward, imagine the scene, though, then when Jesus did do that, and when he did appear to his disciples, imagine what it was like for them. It was as though God was putting an exclamation point on the reality that he, Jesus, was God, because he defeated death. It would have been incredible. They would have been gone from the lowest pit of despair beyond words, watching their Savior crucified, to now being so elated as he appeared right there before them. It meant everything to them. It changed everything. But there was one guy that wasn't there that day. And Jesus appears to his disciples, but there's a guy named Thomas. We don't know where he was. He's got Starbucks. I don't know where he was, but he wasn't there. And so Thomas isn't there, and so Thomas says to, to, the, to the other disciples, he says, I don't care. I, I don't, I'm not going to believe unless I see Jesus myself beyond that, even if I'm, I'm not going to believe unless I put my hand in the nail marks in his hand, and if I touch his side where the spear was inserted into his side. I'm not going to believe. And so sure enough, Jesus appears to Thomas. Maybe you feel like Thomas sometimes. You ever felt that way? You just need proof? I'd be here today even, you might say, I just need, I just need some proof. That was Thomas. So, the scriptures are so real. And so the Lord appears to Thomas, and sure enough, Thomas puts his hand right in the nail marks of Christ and touches his side. And, and as you can imagine, this was the greatest victory in the world for Thomas. And so then he says this in response. He says, Thomas said to Jesus, to him, he says, my Lord and my God. Now, know this, in that moment, what Thomas was doing was he was saying, Jesus, you are not just a moral teacher. 
Jesus, you are not just a good man that some people said you were. Jesus, you are not just what we hoped for, that you'd be this political leader that would rise up and give us new hope. No, he says, Jesus, my Lord and my God. He says, Jesus, you conquered death. You defeated death. There's nothing greater than you could possibly have done. Everybody wins when death is defeated. And grace is embraced. That's the other side of it. That was Thomas's embrace grace moment. I want to wrap up by talking to you a little bit about what does it mean then to embrace grace? How do you do that? In a few minutes, we're going to sing a, a portion of a song that many of you will know. Um, it's sung in churches all over the world and other venues as well. And it was written over 200 years ago. It's translated into many, many languages. The list of artists who have performed this song, Christians and non-Christians alike, it's very impressive. Uh, you could say, arguably, I think that this is potentially the most popular song in history. I mean, it's, it's that familiar. People who follow God recognize the lyrics of this song and those who don't do as well. The song is Amazing Grace. It was written by this guy, John Newton. He wrote it in 1779, and the song really revolves around this word grace. You might have a favorite color. You might have a, a favorite, uh, you know, food. Maybe hopefully you'll get it this afternoon for lunch. This is my favorite word, grace. And John Newton, he was captivated by grace, and so he wrote this song, and it's all about what grace meant to him. And so these are the lyrics, the first verse I just want to show you. It says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace. What was John Newton talking about when he said amazing grace? What's the big deal? What makes grace amazing? What is grace? Now, imagine this for a second. It's, it is tax season and everything. Sorry to bring that up on Easter Sunday, right? But it's tax season. So imagine that you fill out your taxes, you fill out the forms. Imagine you seal the envelope, you go to the mailbox, you put it in the mailbox, and you kind of have this little smile on your face because you know and you hope that you're getting away with something that you know that you shouldn't. And you shut the mailbox and you walk away. Okay, eight months later, you get the surprise news. You're being audited. Ah, oh, bummer, right? And so you appear before the judge, and sure enough, the judge gives you the sentence. The sentence is this. The sentence is three years. Of, of prison time, tax fraud. Um, so you, you know, hey, that's, that's, that's the deal. That's the deal. That's for me to get justice, I need to go to jail. I need to serve my time. And when I do, my debt to society will be paid after I serve three years. That's justice. Here's what justice means. Here it is. Justice is getting exactly what you deserve. Exactly what you deserve. You deserve three years, right? I mean, you disobeyed the law, you're a fraud, tax fraud, three years. Same scenario, imagine this. So now you stand before the judge, same crime, tax fraud, same sentence, three years. And the judge appears before you, and this time, though, he says something a little bit different. He says, hey, if you serve those first two years and your behavior's good and things go okay, he says that last year you can put a little ankle bracelet on and, and a little you know, tracking device, and, and then you can go home and you can be with your family. You can, you can leave. That third year can be different for you. That's called mercy. Here's what mercy is. Mercy is getting less than you deserve. You're catching a break. Mercy is like a small, lowercase w win. It's a win, isn't it? Third scenario, last one. You stand before the judge. The judge says, hey, you, you're guilty of tax fraud. It's three years, prison time. 
But then the judge walks with you across the street over to the prison, and, and as you go in, he gets to the room where you're going to be put in the cell, and, and he says to you, he puts out, he reaches out his arms, he puts them on your shoulder, and he, he says to you, you mean the world to me. Judge, he says, he says, I would do anything for you. And so then he opens the door, and he kind of nudges you out of the way and, and comes in the cell, and, and he shuts the doors on himself, and he looks at you, and he says this, he says, the law must be upheld. The law is right. You were wrong. It must be paid. Justice must be served. But then he says, you know what, though? I will serve this for you. You can go. You can go free. Now imagine that moment for you. That would be a moment where you would say, whoa. You would be wrecked by, this is, that's grace. This is what grace means. Here it is. It's receiving a wonderful gift you don't deserve. You don't deserve it at all. You deserve to go to jail. You deserve the three years time. When John Newton wrote this song, what he was saying is this. He was saying, I'm realizing that I've been given a wonderful gift that I do not deserve. And that's why he called it amazing. Justice, you get what you deserve. Mercy, you get a little bit less. Grace, Oh, capital W win. It is getting the wonderful gift that you don't deserve. And then John Newton goes on. He says this about himself. He says, what did that grace do? It saved a wretch. Sorry, it's Easter and all, but that's what it says, right? It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Now, if I asked you the question, uh, would you call yourself a wretch? Most of you would say no. Um, you'd save the word wretch. I would save the word wretch as well. I would save that wretch, the word wretch for like a, a terrorist, child molester, a rapist, high crime. That's where I would attach the word wretch to. But see, John Newton, he, his trade was, he was the captain of a slave trading ship. And so he looked at his life, he looked at how he made a living and he, it wasn't even so much the atrocity of that, though that alone would, he would want to call himself a wretch for. But even beyond that, the thing that drove him to pick this word wretch was this. He was comparing himself to an absolutely holy God. And he knew this about God. He knew, hey, God is a God of truth. And he, he knew there are times when I tell lies. And he knows that, that God is a God of perfect love. And he knew, wow, my love is imperfect. I actually hate some people. And he knew that, oh, oh God, this God that I've met, he's a God that is completely impartial. John Newton knew for heaven's sakes he had been discriminating against people all of his life. It broke him. John Newton knew that God is a God that holds no grudges and offers forgiveness, but he knew that there are times when he was slow to forgive, and he actually held on to things, and he did hold grudges against other people. And so why did John Newton pick the word wretch? He picked the word wretch because he was comparing himself not to his peers. He was comparing himself to God. He was comparing himself to this holy God that he had, he had met and, and he had and completely rocked his life. And in light of who God was, John Newton said, I'm despicable. He said, I'm a wretch. Oh, I need God. I need God. And then he said, I was lost and now I'm found. And then I love how he ends it. He says this, I was blind, but now I see. 
I can relate to this. John Newton was saying this. He's saying that there was a time when it was like scales were over my eyes and I just couldn't see the grace of God. I didn't get it. I didn't understand maybe what it was. Never had that feeling? You just, don't, you just don't get it? I can relate to that. I was raised in a family where I went to church services often, but it was like I was blind to grace. I didn't get it. When I turned 19 years old and I'm off to college and I'm on this college campus, I've got to be honest with you, God wrecked me with grace. He wrecked me. I realized that I could receive a wonderful gift that I did not deserve. I realized that one day I too, like John Newton, like all of you, I would stand before a holy God and I would give an account for my one and only life. And I realized that on that day I would not need to depend on my own merit, but that I could depend on grace. That God could maybe not look at me, but God would look at Jesus in me. And what would that do? That would be grace on me. But even more than that, that God wouldn't just say, hey, one day it'll be good with you in eternity. But God would say, hey, I'm going to let you walk through the door of forgiveness. And I'm going to allow you to live life with me because I know you and I love you and I care about you. And I want to be in your life. I'm not a distant God. And it wrecked me. Grace wrecked me. John Newton said, oh, it's amazing. I was blind, but now I see. Compared to God, I'm a wretch. I'm in desperate need of God. This morning, I want to leave you with just a very simple question. Here it is. This question, have you embraced grace? Have you embraced it? Um, Everybody wins when death is defeated, right? That's a truth. But here's the response. It's when grace is embraced. So I want to ask you this morning, have you had your moment, like my 19-year-old college campus moment? It was a moment when I said, God, I I get it. It's like the scales have been removed, and I, I see you for who you were, who you are. And there were months that went by after that when I would sing a song like this one John Newton wrote, and I, to my surprise, I'd be bawling like a baby because I was overwhelmed with the fact that the grace of God was so accessible and it was so good. That's why it motivates people to say, do you know, do you know the grace of God? I want to ask you today, have you embraced it? Have you had your moment. Everybody wins when death is defeated, but right along with that, the response, this is where it comes personal, and when grace is embraced. So I'm going to pray for us, and maybe you're here today, and you know, you would say, you know what? I've heard about God. I know Jesus died for my sins, but I've never embraced the, the grace of God. I've never done that. I've never had my moment, and I, want, I wouldn't want anyone to come to this church ever And not be confronted with the reality that you can embrace the grace of God. You need to wait no longer. (laughs) It's that good. And so I'm going to pray. And and if you're a Christian here today, I pray, my prayer for you is that you would be wrecked by grace in a new way. That we would leave here today. And this wouldn't be just another Easter. This would be 2016 Easter where, God, you reignited in me this idea that, oh, this reality of grace and how good it is. So let me, um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Father, thank you that, Father, thank you that when, 
When I was a college student, Lord, you showed up to me. Lord, you got a hold of my heart. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't looking for it. But you showed up and the gospel became clear that I could be forgiven and I could do life with you. Father, we just come to you today. And if you're here today and you would say, I've never grabbed grace. I want to lead you in a prayer that you can just say in your own words even to God right now. Let this be your moment. Let this be your Easter 2016, the day when you say, I'm wrecked like John Newton was wrecked. I see myself compared to a holy God. And frankly, I want to be, I want to be covered in Christ. I don't want to stand alone on that day. And so if that's you this morning, I want to pray for you. And so with everybody's kind of heads bowed here, I just want to say to you right now, even just as a statement, and don't be ashamed of this, as a statement to say, yes, this is my moment Right now, right now, I want you to say, hey, just throw up your hand and say, yes, right now, I'm embracing grace. Lead me in this prayer. I want to see who you are. I want to pray for you. So throw your hand up in the air. Yes, good for you. Yes. Make this your moment. Yes, good. It's awesome. I'm proud of you. Anybody else? Don't let another day go by. Make this your moment. Grab grace. And so you can say this to God, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, this morning I confess to you that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And Jesus, I thank you that when you died for me, you invited me into relationship with you. Unlike any other relationship, you know me by name. And right now you can just be confident you have been forgiven and Jesus welcomes you. You are a child of the living God. And God, for the rest of us today, we just want to say, Lord, thank you for rising from the grave and proving that you're God. Lord, we celebrate you here in this place this morning. God, wreck us afresh with grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.